0: So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we began a couple weeks ago a new series in the Sermon on the Mount. And even if you're not that familiar with Christianity, you might be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. It is arguably the most compelling, the most beautiful, uh, the most concise and dense and rich ethical vision ever given in the history of the world. And so we're spending time together studying this. Now, this last week, as uh, I was working on uh, my sermon, one of the resources that I've engaged with is a Harvard uh, professor of philosophy named Michael Sandal. And he has a series of lectures. He also has another book on ethics. And so I was reading it this week and listening to some of his lectures. And he, in, in one of his lectures, he was talking about Jeremy Bentham, and Jeremy Bentham is, of course, the father of utilitarianism, which is a, an ethical um, a vision that says that when you're faced with the question, what is the right thing to do, you answer that question by asking another question. And that question would be, What would benefit, what would bring happiness to the largest number of people? And so you should choose that ethical action which brings happiness, or in his language, utility, to the largest number of people. So this is what Jeremy Bentham was all about. Interestingly, Jeremy Bentham died in 1832 at the age of 85. But if you go to London today, you can still visit him literally. His body... Uh, is preserved, embalmed, and displayed in the University of London, where he still presides in a glass case with a wax head dressed in his actual clothing. And so you can see him right there. You see, before he died, he addressed himself to a question uh, with his own philosophy. And his question was, what good can a dead man be to the living? one answer would be is that you could donate your corpse and make it available to the study of anatomy. So he said, that's one possible thing I could do. But then he said that in the case of great philosophers, which apparently he considered himself one, he said, better yet to preserve one's physical presence in order to inspire future generations of leaders. (laughs) And so there he is, he's stuffed uh, his head didn't preserve very well, and so they actually created a, a wax head, but you can see his, his not very well-preserved head down at the bottom between his feet. Yeah, it's weird and gross. <laughs> Apparently, uh, he is still brought out at meetings in the University of London, and on the minutes he's recorded as present, but not voting. <laughs> now, what's the moral of the story? Well, the the moral of the story is that here is a philosopher who in life and in death adhered to the principles of his own moral and ethical philosophy. And I think the question that is put to us as we engage with the Sermon on the Mount is, Will we live in a way that is consistent with the moral and the ethical vision of Jesus. You see, Jesus did not simply come to be the Savior and the Redeemer of the world. Jesus did come to do that. Jesus came in order to bring us life after death. But Jesus also came to help us learn how to live before we die. He put it like this. He said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. And so he says, come to me and learn from me how to live. He says, take my yoke, take my ethical teaching, my way of life upon you. And in learning my way of life, you will experience life to the full. And so we've been studying together the ethical vision of Jesus given to us here in the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're going to do today is we're going to spend some time looking at the opening verses. We're going to see where this sermon begins. And we're going to be looking together at the famous Beatitudes, uh, these opening blessings that Jesus speaks over his people. Now, as I was working on this text this week, I found myself a bit overwhelmed and intimidated by this absolutely mammoth passage of scripture. And I felt myself unequal to the task of the beauty and the depth and the profundity of the words of Jesus in this passage. I found myself in some sense feeling like I, was, I had come to the ocean seeking to gather it up with a Dixie cup. And the Dixie cup is my little 40 minutes or 30, hopefully for you, 35 minute sermon. But we're going to be walking together through these Beatitudes today. And I want to begin by making three observations about the Beatitudes as a whole. And the first thing I want to observe is what they are not. The Beatitudes first are not commands. They are not commands. In this, Jesus is not giving us a bunch of moral exhortations. Sometimes they're treated that way, as if Jesus is commanding us to become poor in spirit, or Jesus is commanding us to mourn. But Jesus never gets up and says, I want you all to be sad or to mourn. Instead, it's addressing a group of people who find themselves in a particular kind of state or condition in life. And in that condition, Jesus speaks this word of blessing. It's not a command, it's a blessing. And the reason why they're called beatitudes is because that word blessing in the Latin is beatitude. But it's taken from a Greek word called makarios. And makarios essentially means fortunate, Aren't things amazing for you? And it would be kind of like if you came to me and you said, hey, I just fell in love with and met and asked to, have, asked to marry uh, the love of my life. And she said, yes, and we're getting married this summer. And you say, Makarios, how fortunate, how blessed you are. Or you say, I just got a promotion at work. And we say, Makarios, how fortunate and this was very common in the ancient world where Jesus lived and spoke and worked. He, people would walk around, and, and when something good happened to people, the response would be Makarios. But of course, here is the irony and the paradox of what Jesus does who does he speak his blessings over? It is not over those whose lives are going well and who just got a promotion or fell in love or uh, bought a new car. They didn't have those back then. But this is written to people who are in a very sad state of life. So second observation is notice who these Beatitudes are for. They're not for those who are powerful. Instead, they're for the powerless. Notice in verse 1, it says this. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the text identifies two groups of people that were listening to Jesus. It was the crowds and with the disciples, and it was the disciples. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the, dis- the crowds, it says, were astonished at his teaching. But who are these crowds anyway? Well, Matthew tells us in the previous passage. Look at what it says back up in chapter four, verse 24. It says that his fame spread throughout all Syria, And they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And the great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from all beyond the Jordan." And so there are these crowds and crowds of people whose lives are marked by hardship and pain. They are diseased, they are disenfranchised, they are demonized, they are depressed. And it is these ones who are drawn to Jesus, who is almost like a magnet for human pain. And so crowds come around Jesus, But who are these people? Again, they're the people whose life is difficult and hard. And it is these people that Jesus looks at and he says, how fortunate, how incredibly great, how wonderful for you. Why? Well, because he says, because to you belongs the kingdom of heaven. You're mourning, but God is bringing you comfort. You are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but God will fill you. You are meek, you are powerless, but you will inherit the earth. Jesus says, in the face of your lack, I am bringing my kingdom of abundance and joy and grace, and it is for you. So we've seen what they're not, they're not commands. Who they're for, they're for the, the powerless, not the powerful. But notice how they're structured. And this is pretty interesting. Um, Notice uh, back in our text what it says, verse 2. It says, And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, how many Beatitudes, how many blessings did Jesus speak? Class, do you know? Eight. Some say maybe there's a ninth there, but the ninth one is really an extrapolation on the eighth, which is about blessed are those who are persecuted. So there are eight Beatitudes. And what I want you to notice about these, two, these eight Beatitudes and what scholars have noticed is that they fall into two natural sections. So there's two parts for these eight commands, each falling down in two sections of four Beatitudes each. And the author does different things to highlight that these are two sets. And so, for example, the beginning blessing is... Uh, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, and then here's the promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's bookended by a similar statement. Those blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so these two promises of possession of the kingdom of heaven bookend all of these promises of future blessing in the middle. Another observation is that each of the first. Uh, four Beatitudes begin with the same letter in the Greek alphabet. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Which is a P or yeah, there it is. You can see it up there. And then another interesting thing about these two different sets is that each grouping of four ends with a statement about righteousness. So the first Group of four ends with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The second group of four ends with those who are persecuted for righteousness. And the final interesting feature about these two halves is that each consists of 36 words apiece, which is interesting. Does it sound like the author is doing something intentional there? And so, what is he doing? Well, I think that he's identifying two different types of places we can find ourselves, two different arenas that Jesus is blessing, and they each hang together in these two sections. And you could call the first, and we'll kind of start diving into the meat of the sermon, on the, or the meat of the Beatitudes. Now, these, the first four Beatitudes you could call Beatitudes of Lack. In other words, they speak to us when we are in a position of lacking something. And so, notice the first one. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. They lack spiritual gumption before God. Instead, they're poor in spirit. They don't have any leverage with God. And then he talks about those who lack joy. Blessed are those who mourn. And then those who lack power. Blessed are the meek. And then those who lack righteousness because they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so this is addressing us when we find ourselves in positions of lack. And let's just talk about this for a second. Have you ever found yourself in a place in your own life where you find that you are in need of mercy? You're lacking. You have no leverage. You can't go to God and start demanding and say, God, on the basis of what I've done, you owe me. Instead, you come and you say, God, I have nothing to say. Have you ever found yourself in that place? That is what Jesus is describing in these first four Beatitudes. I can remember a couple of years ago, uh, I had an old 1982 uh, 300 or, or 200, 240 uh, diesel Mercedes, which I love those old diesel engines. They're awesome, and this th- my 240D broke down out in front of my house, and out in front of my house was a two-hour uh, parking sign. However, I had a parking permit to park there because I lived there, but my parking permit was expired. So I needed to go down to the city and renew my parking permit, but life was so busy. And so you know, the day came and I got it one ticket, and I thought, oh, I need to go down to the city. But you know, the place was always closed. It seemed like it was never convenient. And then a couple of days later, I got another ticket. And then a couple of days after that, I got another ticket. And a couple of days after that, I got another ticket. A couple of days after that, I got another ticket. All the while, I'm convincing myself I'm going to go down to the city, and uh, and I finally get my car fixed. I can move it off the street. I put it in the driveway. Meanwhile, I took all of those tickets and I put it in the place where I can always helpfully remember where they're at. I put them in my glove compartment. And then I forgot about them. And a few months later, I received a notice in the mail from the city. Apparently they had sent other notices in the mail, but I don't recall ever getting any other notices in the mail from the city. And apparently these, these tickets, which originally had been for 30 or $40 each, had turned into tickets that now were about three dollars to $400 a piece. And then I needed to go talk to my wife. And this was the first moment where I felt like I needed mercy in this situation. <laughs> And then I needed to go down to the city. And when I went down to the city, I said, can I pay for these? And they said, "Um, no, you now need to go to court and stand before the judge. So then I had to go down to court and here I am. I remember walking into court and I knew I had to sit there for a few hours. So I had like my my Bible study materials, you know, all of my like pastor books, you know, I'm sitting in the, the, the seat there and all these like hardened criminals are around me. And um, they're all being called before the judge for you know this violation, this crime and that one. And then finally the judge calls me up and I'm absolutely terrified. I'm completely ashamed and embarrassed because what do you tell a judge? I'm sorry, I got a, after the eighth ticket, I just forgot about him. I had no claim, nothing to say. And I remember he looked up at me and he just started laughing. And he said, did you, did you pay your meter today out front? <laughs> and all I could say was, I'm an idiot, and I'm sorry. And would you have mercy on me? I don't think I can pay two or $3,000 today. And he showed me mercy. But this is the position that humanity finds themselves before God. This is the position of all of us. None of us can go to God, the ultimate divine judge, and have claim on him and say, God, you owe me. And yet, very often, this is where we can find ourselves. God, after I have worked so hard for you and I've been reading my Bible and I've been faithful and I've been a good Christian, and yet, why have I not been given a spouse? Why the sickness? Why the pain? God, God, this is your fault. You owe me. And that is somebody who is not full of spiritual poverty, but of spiritual pride. But Jesus says, if you come to God, you come to him with empty hands. You bring nothing, you deserve nothing, but God meets you in your lack, and he overcomes your lack with the abundance of his grace and his muchness. And these are the, this is the good news that Jesus is announcing to all of the disenfranchised, the disempowered, the demonized, the diseased, the depressed, Jesus says the kingdom of God is for people just like you. And this is incredibly great news. And then Jesus moves from these undesirable states and conditions Who among us wants to lack joy and spiritual power and gumption? Who among us wants to lack power in this world where we can get stuff done? We're a mover and a shaker, and we're well-moneyed and well-connected and privileged, and we can get stuff done. We're not meek. But Jesus says these are people who lack power and privilege and righteousness When he says down in verse six, by the way, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't simply think he's talking about somebody who is just anxious and strong spiritually and is just like this deep, hungry person for righteousness and they're just living holy, righteous, godly lives. I think this is somebody who is malnutritioned when it comes to righteousness. And they hunger and they thirst. They try and they fail and they're ashamed and embarrassed of of their history and their record. And Jesus says, good news, cheer up, great news. My kingdom is for people just like you. You see, before the Beatitudes, before the Sermon on the Mount ever confronts us with command, it showers us with grace. Before it ever gives us law, it first gives us promise and gospel. This is Christianity, this is Christian ethics. They begin in, they are grounded in, they are infused by, and they are continued upon all by God's unmerited, gracious smile over our lives that none of us deserve. So he moves from these undesirable states and conditions to the second half of the Beatitudes, which I think actually move us into countercultural virtues. So the first half is more undesirable, and the second half becomes more desirable virtues. And I think they're connected, because I think logically one leads to the other. And so, for example, notice each of the four. He says, Blessed are the merciful. Who are the merciful? They're the people that when you've blown it, you've screwed up again, you've messed up and you know it, and they come to you with mercy and grace, and they say, you are still loved. We're still okay. I'm gonna help you. You need to turn away from that stupidity. You need to own it. You need to acknowledge it, but you are, I love you, and I extend mercy to you. And then he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Another way in which you could translate pure in heart is singleness of heart. And so he is speaking here about a singleness, a commitment of heart to God. And it's saying, look, if this God has given everything without reservation to me, then I will turn and I will give my life unreservedly to him. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers. In a world of warmongers, a world where we are always engaged in culture wars and political wars and uh, Facebook wars and tearing each other apart and ridiculing and not understanding, Jesus says, my people are being formed and shaped into a different kind of people. These are people who lack nothing and they've been given everything by God, by sheer mercy and grace. How can they not move out in the world and become a peacemaker, extending grace and mercy? And I love this one. He says, those who are blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And it's as if Jesus is saying, those who extend mercy, who work for reconciliation, who sit and listen and try to understand before they demand to be understood and heard, which is what we do in our political discourse. We don't sit and understand the other. Instead, we demand that they understand us, and then we exaggerate and we distort their positions. We make it easy for us to criticize, and we tear them down. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are peacemakers, who work to reconcile divided peoples and relationships, because that is like God. You see, what has God done? At the very center of cosmic history is God's great act of reconciliation, where the true and living God broke into humanity. And rather than exacting revenge on us and going after you and putting, pushing all of your stupidity and your wrongdoing back on your own head, instead, he took it on himself, he absorbed it, and in absorbing it in himself, he broke its power, and he chose to move toward us with grace and forgiveness." And he says, blessed are those who receive my reconciling love and become agents of reconciliation out into the world. And then he says, finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. You know, in every culture, in every time and place, there are aspects of Christianity that overlap with the culture. And there are some values that, you know, because of common grace and because they just make sense, there are things that, that in, in, in a particular cultural moment we can all, kind of all champion and agree on. But there's also in every time and place aspects of Christianity that diverge from what the culture is telling us with regard to subjects like money and sex and power and immigrants And it calls us into a different way of being that goes counter to the culture. And oftentimes people don't understand. They ridicule us. They make fun of us. They persecute us. And I recognize that in our state, we live pretty charmed lives. Most of us, most of us are not facing persecution. But there may be someone in here who, because you made a choice to be honest instead of to be deceitful in a sale, you lost the sale, and your boss got on you, and they laid into you, and you were being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus says, Blessed are you, because my kingdom belongs to you. So, Jesus, first in the, in the Beatitudes, he, he speaks to us about our stations, our condition of lack. And then he turns and he talks to us about these countercultural virtues. But then finally, I want you to see that Jesus addresses and he brings to bear his promise of future grace upon our state of current need. And look at how he puts it. Notice his breathtaking promise with each one of these. They're just beautiful. Notice the, 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 the bookends, the beginning and the end. He speaks of those who are poor in spirit, and those who are persecuted have the possession of God's kingdom. Now let's talk for just a second about the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus believed, like many people, many Jewish leaders in the ancient world, that history was divided into two main epochs or ages. There was the present age, this current age, and then there was the age to come. And the present age was disfigured by sin and hunger and demons and sickness and violence and disease and death. The principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities, both spiritual and demonic, as well as their political earthly counterparts like Caesar and Rome, were brutalizing the world in this present age. But God promised one day to destroy, to dismantle and deconstruct the present empire of darkness, this present age, with a massive historical interruption, an apocalyptic invasion where God would break into human history and he would work to recreate and restore the world and he would bring his own healing, saving, peaceable, justice-bringing rain to bear on earth even as it is in heaven. And this is what people in the day of Jesus were looking for and longing for. And Jesus comes along and He announces to everyone. He says, here and now in me, in my life, in my death, in my resurrection, the kingdom of God is at hand. And that doesn't mean that the kingdom of God was simply, you know, in a temporal sense, you know, it was was close by. It was more speaking of the kingdom of God is here in me. When you see me heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and eat with sinners and welcome outcasts and forgive sins. When you see the dead raised, he says, this is the healing, saving, powerful reign of God breaking into human history. And he says, and this saving kingdom is available to all who are in need. This kingdom of comfort is for those who mourn. This kingdom of satisfaction and joy is for those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This kingdom of mercy is for the merciful. This kingdom of the visio day, of the very encounter with God, is for those who are pure in heart. This kingdom where the children of God will live in the presence of God is for the peacemakers. Jesus says, my kingdom has come and it's coming in the future. And as you live in this tension, Jesus says you can live in hope. Now I wanna just stand back and I wanna make just a couple quick observations for us about the Beatitudes. Number one, I think what the Beatitudes teaches us is that it might be that your biggest burden is actually your greatest gift. It could be that that space in your life where you finally have experienced lack and need. This is the very place where the kingdom of God can begin to break in and change your life. When it comes to the gracious, healing, restorative kingdom of God, all you need is need. But I think the the Beatitudes teach us something else. It's teaching us that the ethical vision of Jesus, this way of life, is not first and foremost for moral champions. It is for people who have failed again and again. You know, um, when I was up in Oregon a few weeks ago with my parents, uh, they introduced us to a show, I don't know if you've seen it, but American Ninja Warrior. Anybody here watch American Ninja Warrior? But it's pretty, pretty awesome, you know. There are these, these like ultra fit like super athletes and they have this ultra challenging, you know, course that they have to go through and they've got to like climb up these stairs with their hands, you know, backwards and then do flips and fly over fire and water and volcanoes and leap mountains. They have to do all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and you, you look at the, the course that they have to do, you just think, nobody can do that. And then you look at these, these guys and they're super fit and athletic, and you're like, maybe that guy can do it because he's a champion. And you can almost look at the Sermon on the Mount as if it's just this crazy ethical obstacle course. Who on earth is perfect as your father in heaven is perfect? Who when slapped on one cheek turns the other way? Who goes the extra mile? I mean, who lives like this? You can think, this is, this, is, this is like Christianity, like 8.0. I'm down here at like 0.20. But Jesus delivers this beautiful ethical vision to those who are broken and needy. And he says, when you become recipients of my grace, my grace is powerful and it is transformative and it moves you out in a way of life that is full of mercy and peacemaking and purity and righteousness. It's as if Jesus is saying, it is not simply law and rules and religion that produces the ethical life. How many of you have ever experienced people who have spent ages in churches with laws and rules and religion, and it actually made them more miserable people to be around than before? Anybody here know people like that? It doesn't create The genuine life that Jesus offers. What is it that actually transforms us and moves us out into the world differently? It is again and again having our hearts and our affections and our life rooted in the life giving, transformative grace of God revealed to us in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's when your heart is rooted down in that and you constantly find yourself as a person in need and yet you're experiencing this, it continues to shape and form and transform you so that you become the kind of person that over time is on this journey of becoming into the kind of person that that keeps the Sermon on the Mount. And this is God's way among us. It is a way of grace. So Let's pray together. Let's just ask that God in the weeks and in the months ahead that God would save us both from self-loathing when we look at the stuff in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, just exposes us and makes us look like a a wreck and also self-righteousness for those times when we have those minor victories and we start doing stuff that Jesus starts talking about and we become self-righteous. And Let's just pray that God would make us into the kind of people that Live with open hands and open hearts that recognize our need, that we are people in need of mercy, that receive it constantly and regularly, and then move out into the world as his agents of mercy and grace and reconciliation. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you and we praise you that you reveal yourself to us in Jesus as a God of grace. And we confess that many of us at different moments and times in our life have found ourselves full of ourselves. Looking down on others, critical and condemning and judging, have mercy on us, O oh God. We confess that we are the needy ones, that we are poor in spirit apart from you that we are powerless, that we are morally bankrupt. And we just pray, oh God, that you would meet us in our need and that your infinite ocean of grace and love would overcome us and would more and more in the weeks and months ahead transform us and make us into a people who practice the life-giving way of your son Jesus. It's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.